So we have been in this worship series on the Acts of the Apostles all summer long, all summer long. And last week we looked at Acts chapter 17. This was Paul's uh, famous speech when he was in Athens. And now we're in Acts chapter 20. And a tremendous amount of things have taken place actually in the midst of just four chapters. Uh, at the end of Acts chapter 17, Paul then concludes his second missionary journey, goes back to Jerusalem, and now he's sent back out on his third missionary journey, which is his last. And he has just spent three years in Ephesus, a long time. And he's been doing ministry amongst them. And now we're picking up on his farewell sermon. Paul is leaving Ephesus after three years of ministry. And you will hear what he has to say as he gathers together the elders as a slight tangent before the preaching really begins. Uh, this is a great argument in favor of the Presbyterian model of doing ministry, that there all the elders are gathered together. So it's kind of like a Presbyterian meeting, but probably a really good one since uh, it was back in the beginning. With all the elders and the leaders of the church gathered together, Paul addresses them all together for a farewell sermon. So if you'd like to, you can follow along on the screens this morning, or you could also open up an app on your phone or open up a physical Bible if you have one in front of you, like I have one right here. Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 38. Listen to God's word. From Miletus, Paul sent a message to Ephesus, asking the elders of the church to meet him. When they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the entire time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears enduring the trials that came to me through the plots of the Jews. I did not shrink from doing anything helpful, proclaiming the message to you and teaching you publicly and from house to house as I testified to both Jews and Greeks about repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus. And now as a captive to the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and persecutions are waiting for me. But I do not count my life of any value to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the good news of God's grace. And now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will ever see my face again. Therefore, I declare to you this day that I am not responsible for the blood of any of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Keep watch over yourselves and over all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God that he obtained with the blood of his own son. I know that after I have gone, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Some even from your own group will come distorting the truth in order to entice the disciples to follow them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to warn everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the message of his grace, a message that is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or clothing. You know for yourselves that I worked with my own hands to support myself and my companions. 
In all this, I have given you an example that by such work we must support the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus, for he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had finished speaking, he knelt down with them all and prayed. There was much weeping among them. They embraced Paul and kissed him, grieving especially because of what he had said, that they would not see him again. Then they brought him to the ship. This is the gift of God's word. Thanks be to God. Join me in a word of prayer. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. After my uh, child was born a few months ago, my, my second child, we received a variety of gifts from some people in the church and from some family and some friends. And one of the gifts that we received was from Sally and Dave McClure. And it was sort of an unexpected gift, but it's been a very helpful one. They gave a gift to us of a e-learning opportunity for becoming better parents. <laughs> and while my wife and I got this gift, we thought, hey, I think we're pretty good parents already. But this is such a very helpful gift that they gave to us. And there was about nine videos in it. And it was from some experts on parenting. And they had different lessons to learn about what becoming a good parent was like for little children. And so my wife and I, when we have time, which is not much, we try to watch these videos together. And one of the videos was very instructive and informative for me. And it was very helpful. The video was about emotional intelligence and how you can raise children to become very intelligent with their emotions. They called it the emotional quotient, that in the same way we think of the intellect of having an IQ, there's this thing called the EQ, where having an awareness of one's emotions and knowing how to deal with them is as important as having an academic awareness around our intellect. And it was a very good and helpful lesson for me to learn. Essentially, the lesson that I took away from it was this, is that we are emotional beings. Emotions are a part of who we are, and we need to address our emotions. And as parents, when you see toddlers especially going through powerful emotional moments in their life, you notice it. So you say, I see that you're sad right now. Are you sad right now? And then get them to help acknowledge their emotions, to name them, to say, yes, I, I am sad. Do you want to tell me about what's making you sad? And if you can begin to engage with a toddler around that, and they can say, yeah, this is what's making me sad. And then finally, if you're able to help them get to that point where they can name their own emotions to say what they are, and you can affirm them and just normalize it and say, yeah, yeah, dad gets sad too. It's very normal to get sad. You're sad, I'm sad. That, that happens to us. Then you can get to a point where you say, well, I wonder if there's a way we could try to address that. And maybe next time we wouldn't be so sad. Um, now that we have identified that you're feeling a little sad. That's it. It's not the most complex process. It's just being able to notice and pay attention to the emotions that a child is having and to help them and to affirm them that they're very normal things and then do a little bit of problem solving when you get to the end of it. Emotional intelligence, having a very healthy emotional intelligence. In, in a way, I think... This is kind of what Paul is doing in his farewell sermon with the leaders of the church in Ephesus. 
Paul was there for three years, and he experienced a tremendous amount of intense emotions. Did you hear that in the scripture? Uh, Paul speaks about being in deep grief, that he knew because of the message that was given to him and his ministry with the Holy Spirit that he was going to see persecution and imprisonment everywhere he went. He was uh, filled up with intense and powerful emotions as a result of the ministry that he was doing there in Ephesus. And not just that, but he's leaving them now. And he loves this community. He loves being with them. He loved the ministry that he was doing there. And he's anxious and nervous about his future that's very uncertain when he goes back to Jerusalem. Acts is written by the same author that wrote the book of Luke. And do you remember back earlier this year, a long, long time ago, when we were in Lent, and we paid attention to those stories about Jesus moving towards Jerusalem in the Gospel of Luke, and we knew that there was an uncertain future for him too. We, we knew what his future was, but in a similar kind of way, Paul now is almost going back to Jerusalem at the end of his third missionary journey in a similar kind of fate to Jesus's is going to be his. So there's an incredible amount of pain, anxiety. There's some intense emotions. And Paul, I think, is naming these things with the elders. He says, this is happening. There's persecution. There's suffering. There's imprisonment. And there's some powerful things happening around us right now. And you could even feel at the end the way that Luke tells us in narrative form that they all are just holding each other, embracing each other, and crying at the end of this as they say goodbye to Paul. There's a lot of emotions. Paul even uses some biblical language to talk about wolves coming in after he leaves that might scatter the flock or take up the flock. And not just people outside, but people within might end up becoming some of those wolves who pull people away from the faith. Uh, there's a lot of intense things happening in the story with the Ephesian elders, and it's a very powerful thing. I think in some ways Paul is trying to name these powerful emotions about concluding his three years of ministry with the church in Ephesus. I hardly need to even try to come up with examples about powerful emotional realities right now for us, right? I mean, the last four or five months of what life has felt like has been uh, very difficult for many of us for a variety of different reasons. I don't feel like I even need to list anything off. But part of what I think I notice is that a lot of those coping mechanisms that we used to have for just dealing with normal things in life don't exist anymore. And so because of that, when we get to this point, even if we are very strong in our own sense of emotional intelligence, like, oh, I'm not having a good day today. You know, you can feel that in your own self and you feel good about where you are with your emotional intelligence. When it comes to that piece of problem solving your way through it, we don't ultimately actually know how to problem solve our way through some of these things anymore because those things that we used to do, those things we used to love, seeing people, uh, having face-to-face -face conversations with people, seeing people smile at each other, Right, like those pieces of just a very simple interpersonal human connection just don't exist the way they used to right now. And I think it lends itself to really difficult emotional dynamics in our lives. And in the midst of those emotional dynamics, we don't always know how to get to the problem solving part of it. We can acknowledge it, say they're there, and we can say they're very normal, and everybody's experiencing them right now, but it doesn't mean that we actually know how to process our way through these things sometimes and get to a place of problem solving. And I think we can get stuck sometimes in feeling, feeling difficult, feeling these hard feelings at times. 
when I was in seminary, I was exposed to a variety of different theologies, right? There's all sorts of different kinds of theologies. And I, I, I sort of had a sense and awareness of this prior to seminary, but I really became aware of this when I was there. There's all sorts of different kinds of theologies. Uh, there's the Reformed theology, which we ascribe to as this church, as a part of the history of Luther and Calvin breaking away from the Catholic Church during the Protestant Reformation. So Reformation theology is really what kind of faith was born as a result of that time in the 16th century in protesting the Catholic Church. There's other kinds of theologies too, like practical theology. What does our faith look like in the context of everyday life? So there's classes on practical theology. You can learn about how to do counseling with family and with other people. What does faith look like in this really kind of practical way in our life? There's performative theology. What does theology look like when you're leading worship? How does our body mechanics and our gesticulations communicate something about who God is and what we're doing as worship leaders? In the 1960s, there was a theology that was created out of South America called liberation theology. The governments in South America in the 1960s were committing incredible atrocities to the people. Um, probably some of you know better than I do that history. And as a result, there were priests and theologians in the Catholic Church who saw what was going on around them, and they were just, they just wondered, what do the scriptures have to say about what we see going on around us and how oppressed people are getting taken advantage of by these oppressive governments? And they created these liberation theologies. Now, since the 1960s, there's been all sorts of different kinds of liberation theologies. Each person is kind of take up as a different oppressed group. And I was not aware of any of this theology prior to my going to seminary. And I've invested in doing some reading the last few years from different liberation theologians. And I want to read a quote to you today. It's from Justo Gonzalez and his wife, Catherine Gonzalez. They wrote a book, this teeny little book a few years ago, maybe 30 years ago, about preaching liberation theology. But the introduction to it is really helpful, I think, for me in understanding liberation theology, but also this moment we're living in where we're all experiencing powerful emotional dynamics as a result of our experiences and not being able to cope the way we used to, but also just an awareness of broad, powerful social problems and social dynamics around us right now. And this has been really helpful for us. I'm gonna read this to us. I'm also going to put it into the Facebook Live in the comment section so you can read it along with me. And there's a 40 second delay, so you're gonna see the comment before I'm actually reading it, but it will be there for you, okay? So one second, let me put this in. Okay, here's the quote. You can follow along on the, on the text in front of you on Facebook Live. It says this, if liberation theology is by definition done by those who have been powerless, traditionally powerless, think of South America in that, that, that context, how can it be useful to those who by nationality, gender, race, or economic status are to be classified from the powerful will be probably include the strange idea that part of the uselessness of the powerful is that they are not really very powerful at all. Many white middle-class liberal Christians in this country readily and constantly feel a sense of guilt for their position of affluence in a world beset by problems of hunger and poverty. 
Obviously, there is ample reason for such a sense of guilt, yet often such guilt leads to the conclusion that we are really guilty because we voluntarily chose this affluence. We created the problem, and we can therefore alter the situation. The feeling of guilt is acceptable to us as long as we can also have the same sense that unlike the oppressed we wish to help, we are free and independent members of society. We can decide to assist those who are downtrodden to help them attain the status we have. It is not so pleasant to think of ourselves as both guilty and powerless. The thought that the vast majority of us who see ourselves as free are really the captives of the same structures and forces that cause the poverty we wish to eliminate is difficult to accommodate. Yet, this thought is essential if we are to see how liberation theology can relate to our churches. Our consciousness must continue to remind us of the evil from which we benefit while others suffer. Okay, obviously this is a very dense and packed quote I gave to you, and maybe that's not so smart given our dynamics right now in Facebook Live. But there's something that he says in here that I think is so profound, which is that when we face social problems, right, we can experience a sense of guilt. Maybe we don't ultimately identify with who he said was the liberal white Christians and those persons of affluence, but I think to some extent, we, maybe we in this church experience a sense of being the affluent people and being people with quote-unquote power. And I think we can experience even more intense emotions and guilt as a result of that. Here's the key, I think, in understanding some of these things and why this is such a helpful quote to me as it pertains to Acts chapter 20. See, when it comes to being able to do some problem solving and what we can do in this world, um, you know, I think what he's trying to identify and talk about here is that as individuals, think about it this way. You know, we can do something as a result right now with the COVID, uh, what's happening in our world. We can wear masks when we're out in public. We can do social distancing. We can make these choices ourselves to do these things. But ultimately, at the end of the day, I'm powerless to make it so that when people go get their tests taken, that they actually get them in two weeks' time or in a period of time that's going to be most helpful for them and helpful for everybody. Like, there are dynamics happening that I can't do anything about myself. Yet, there's something that's been born into me thinking that I actually have power over these situations. And I have an experience that I can kind of grab onto this stuff and I have power over these things. And yet, I don't. And yet, I don't actually have power over those things. So I think this quote is helpful because it means that we don't just run away from the feelings we have. We don't run away from the evil we see in this world. We don't run away from what Paul says about the persecutions and imprisonment that he sees coming for him. He knows that there's hard things going to happen for him in his ministry and an uncertain future. And he doesn't avoid this stuff. He doesn't avoid it. He pays attention to it. He pays attention to it. He keeps it right in front of him. And that's what this author is saying too. To continue to keep on our conscience the ways in which there might be evil happening in the world and how we benefit from it where other people might end up suffering from it. Because at the end of the day, we're caught in the same system, in the same dynamic. And we may not be able to ultimately make changes to it, but we will have powerful emotional realities. And as a result of that, I think we can see hope when we begin to keep our minds on these things. It may seem paradoxical, but there is hope right there when we continue to pay attention to these realities. And this is the exact hope that Paul points to in Acts chapter 20. 
in the midst of all the hard things that are happening in Ephesus and is worried about a future. He's worried about these wolves coming in. But he says one of the most beautiful things. I commend to you God's grace. It's a grace that is able to build you up and give you inheritance among all who are sanctified. What beautiful words. What beautiful words. In the midst of this tough farewell sermon by the Apostle Paul to the Ephesian elders that's filled with grief and sadness and tears, here is hope. Here is beauty that's poured out to all of them. That Paul says, I commend to you this message of God's grace, which is able to build you up and give you inheritance. I think this is the hope of what I've tried to learn about emotional intelligence, that it can build you up, that at some point you are no doubt going to have powerful emotional dynamics in your life. And the hope is that we can continue to learn about them so that you don't allow them to overcome you and, and control your way of life and your way of being. And I know that sounds... Um, that might sound, uh, I, I don't know what the right, not so sensitive, because I know there's some folks that, for whom they can't have a healthy emotional intelligence as a result of some things happening in their life. But that's the hope of having a strong emotional intelligence, right? So that you can get sad and acknowledge it, but it doesn't overcome your life. It doesn't overpower you. And in the same sense, Paul is saying, look, there's these things going on and I see them happening but they are not more powerful than the message of God's grace in your life. That grace can build you up. That grace can give you inheritance among all who are sanctified. Don't worry. I know there's a possibility for wolves coming in. And when I leave, there's going to be grieving. There's going to be sadness. I can't be here to see what happens in your ministry. But God's grace will build you up. It will give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. God's message of grace builds you up. It's that, it's that hopeful goal that at some point a parent can be separated from child and the child they themselves can begin to identify and take care of their own emotional well-being, right? That by the time they're old enough, a parent can be taken away and they can do it. Paul's the same thing. Paul is leaving them and he is entrusting them to this ministry of God's grace that can build them up and has built them up. And they know this inheritance. They're ready. Obviously, they're going to be sad, they're going to be tremendously sad at the loss of Paul, but they have this message of grace and it will build them up and it will take care of them as Paul is separated them. Like when parents get separated from children, Paul's done his job. Obviously, there's sadness and lament anytime that happens when parents leave children, when pastors leave their communities, because we have experienced such tremendous amounts of amazing moments in life, frankly, when we've seen God at work in the midst of family, in the midst of church. And so there's powerful emotional things happening there. But he doesn't let the emotional things overpower and overcome their own way of being in the world. He's allowed to leave. He can go because he knows he's done the right thing in the midst of the ministry, which is to give them the ministry of God's grace that has built them up, has given them an inheritance among all who are sanctified. I think that's the word for us too, friends. God's grace has built us up. And I know this is an incredibly hard time. I know there's a lot of things that are difficult going on. And ultimately, we feel like sometimes we're not able to do or to problem solve, or we're usually in this world of like, oh, I can do this, I can do that. We ultimately can't do some of the things that we wish we could do right now. But what we do have is God's grace. It is always with us, and it will build you up. And it will be with all of us. And it is our inheritance is part of the sanctified. 
Earlier this summer, I was talking to my friend Rafael Avendano, and um, he let me know, and he's let everybody know now, and he's our friend at this church, Rafael, that he is leaving Siena Youth Center as their director of programs. And he has left them, and he is taking a new position at another nonprofit in Redwood City. And I know that that's going to be a very sad thing for a lot of people in the community there. It's a sad thing for our community, too. We love Rafael, and our probably engagement with him will decrease as a result of his transitioning from this position. And he's had a farewell, much like the Apostle Paul left that community. Rafael had to leave his community today, too. But I've been thinking about that quote, as I said. How do we pay attention to the things in our life that we might benefit from, that other people suffer from? And we have these experiences of guilt, these experiences of emotions of guilt sometimes about the things we see in this world, about the problems we experience. And as a result of that learning, I spent a lot of time with Siena Youth Center so that I could just kind of see what was going on in their community. And I want to share one story about how Raphael built them up in God's grace. Raphael started a biking ministry with kids in North Fair Oaks, and they're called the Bulldog Riders. And he taught them how to build bikes, he taught them how to ride bikes, and then he gave them, I think, what's probably the best gift of their whole life. He taught them how to advocate for themselves in their community. If you haven't ridden a bike in North Fair Oaks, it's not a very pleasant experience. On this part of our community, riding a bike down Alameda de las Pogas is nice, it's fun, there's bike lanes. People understand that there's more bikes than there are cars right now during the pandemic on Alameda, and they're very generous and caring. But in North Fair Oaks, it's a different story. On Middlefield Road, it's very dangerous to ride your bike on that road. Cars are zooming by. The way that it's been designed does not really lend itself to bikes. Cars can back in and out, and it's dangerous. You could easily see like a 10-year-old needing to go to the grocery store to pick something up and get hit by a car. It's a really scary thing. So Raphael gave them the gift of noticing these things, talking about them, and then asking them what they want to do. And they said, we want to find a way to get bike lanes in our community. This came from the students. It didn't come from Raphael. And the students themselves went to Redwood City Council meetings. They went to the San Mateo County Supervisor meetings. And they advocated on behalf of themselves and the people in their community. And finally, after years of advocacy, they were able to have a new plan be accepted. I don't think it's done yet, but I know that they have been able to do their own problem solving. It's an incredible gift that Raphael's given to them. So even though Raphael is leaving that community, much like Paul leaving that community or a parent leaving their child, there is a way that God has built them up in the midst of that relationship. And that being built up through God, they're going to be okay. Those kids are going to be okay. They're not going to be okay. They're going to have a sense of, I can be an advocate for myself and for my community and if other people want to come be a part of that advocacy, come on down to Redwood City. Come on down to Siena Youth Center to be a part of what we're doing. And I think that's a gift of God's grace to those children. I think that's a gift of God's grace for all of us in this church community as we've partnered with different mission communities too, that we can see these powerful social dynamics can make us feel guilty, can make us feel hard. There's a lot of tough things going on. But deep down we know, just like the Apostle Paul, that God's grace builds us up. And we can stand strong and firm in that belief and know our inheritance among all the sanctified. Join me.
in a word of prayer. Gracious God, you who love us as a parent, we use language of father to represent your relationship to your son Jesus, but also to all of your children here on earth, and we count ourselves as your children. We know, God, that there are times when we feel close to you or you may feel distant, but we trust that the message of grace has built us up and that we can stand firm and we can stand strong in that. We cannot avoid the hard things in life. We can pay attention to them because we know we have strength and we can be built up through your message of grace, your love, and the inheritance that you give to us as all who are sanctified, the ones who have the Holy Spirit with them. And truly the Spirit is with us right now. Lord, we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.